The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. Um, it's good to be with you. Wow, I miss you. Wish we could be together this morning, but I'm very glad to be able to spend this time with you. Uh, and maybe you're not a part of Fountain of Life, but you're tuning in today from wherever. Uh, we're really glad you're a part of this as well. And uh, just a reminder, if any of you have any needs we can serve you with, or even any questions about what the text says, or what it means to know Jesus, we would love to hear from you. Please email us, email at folfcrc.com, email at folfcrc.com. But uh, let's spend a, a minute or two just praying, asking God for help as we get ready to come before his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we have such a desperate need for you, a desperate need to, to know you, Lord, to have our minds renewed by your truth, to have our hearts softened by your spirit, to be encouraged by your love for us and your faithfulness in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, even as we are spread out all over the place, um, we pray that your spirit would just unite us, Lord, in the truth we proclaim, in the love that we share together. And please, Lord, meet us, each one, where we are this morning, and move us towards you. Reveal yourself to us. Lord, please bless our encounter with your word, and we pray that you would do uh, amazing work in us as we hear you speak. Uh, and we pray this for your glory, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning we are just going back into our study through the letter of 1 John. And we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. And here the Apostle John gives such an important warning to these churches which he loves. And the warning has to do with what they love you realize John is warning not just these, church, these churches, but all Christians about what we love. Uh, now that leads us, I think, to ask some important questions. Number one, are you willing to be warned? Are you willing to be warned? Um, you know, sometimes we hear anything like, I'm warning you. Uh, we get defensive. Maybe one reason for that is, Warnings feel a little insulting. We think as we're warned, are you inferring I don't have all my stuff together? I remember in high school once, my dad warned me. And dad, I know you're listening right now, so thanks for being a great dad. My dad warned me once. He told me in high school, he said, that I was an irresponsible driver and I really needed to tone it down. And I'm pretty sure I thought in that moment, Hey, are you inferring I don't have all my stuff together? Because obviously, high schoolers always have all their stuff together. Well, let me tell you, the next day, I got a reckless driving ticket. The next day. So let me give you uh, three morals to my story. Number one, good parents, good apostles... And even decent pastors will sometimes warn those they love. 
We get warned. We need to get warned. Number two, we may think we have our stuff together when in actual fact we don't. Number three, if we're wise, which I wasn't in that story I told, we'll be open to the warning. We'll want to hear the warning. We'll open ourselves to the warning. And the warning this morning from John, it goes deep because do you see, John is going to warn us regarding what we love. He's going to warn us regarding what we love. Now that's really something. We could tend to assume that the only reason we love something is because it's lovable. And we only love things, right? Because they're good and we're good people. Right? Evidently not. John here is writing to Christians and he's saying even Christians need to examine what they love. Even Christians need to realize that they don't always have the stuff of their hearts together. It's very easy for us to love the wrong things or love good things in the wrong way. So it's so challenging for us. I mean, our world says things like this to us. Follow your heart. Do what feels right. Go after whatever it is that you love. Do what's true for you. And here in this text, God is saying, uh, true for you might ruin you. God is saying, the only way you should ever follow your heart is if you have a heart that's following his commands. So we need him so desperately. We need him so desperately. We need him to show us what we love. To reveal to us what we ought to love. And transform us in such a way that we begin to love what's truly righteous, lovable, love-worthy. So that's what I believe God wants to do here in First John this morning. Um, let's look at our text. We're going to be in 1 John 2, as I said, 15 to 17. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, and let's read that together. Here the apostle writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So I'm calling our message today the fork in the road of your heart. And so the image I'm seeing in my mind is um, the road of your life, even more deeply than that, the road of what you love, and a fork in the road in the sense that you're going to have to go one way or the other. You cannot take both roads. They're exclusive, mutually exclusive. And as we see in this passage today, this is true for what we love. You either love the world or you love the Father. It can't be both. Just a little bit of background in 1 John before we hit the core of this passage. 
Uh, we've seen, haven't we, if you remember, that 1 John is mainly about the idea of assurance, I think. It's the idea of how can we know that we really know the real God? How can we have confidence that he is ours and we are his? How can we know we know him? Because John wants us to know. He writes using words like confidence, um, knowing with, with security, with courage, uh, and he's shown us four tests for knowing how we can know God. There's objective criterion by which we can measure ourselves and know whether or not we know. Number one is, um, as we've seen, the test of the truth that you believe. The test of the truth that you believe. This is focused on who Jesus is and what he's done. This is the doctrinal test. Uh, Christianity claims that Jesus is the eternal son of God who became human to live a perfect life for us, die on the cross for our sins in our place. He rose from the dead and he reigns forever as king. That's the test of the truth. Do you believe that? Number two, there's a test of your honesty towards your sin and your knowledge of your need for Jesus to save you. John has said previously, if we claim to be without sin, we're liars and the truth is not in us. So there's a test of truth, there's a test of honesty towards your sin. There's also, as we've seen, the test of your practical love for other Christians. This is a big deal. If you have tasted the Father's love for you, undeserved love for you in Christ, you will love his people, even if they're difficult for you, even when they disagree with you, you will love them. So the test of the truth you believe, the test of your honesty towards your sin, the test of your practical love for other Christians, and fourth, the test of your love for God, as shown in your desire to obey his word. If you know him, if you know Jesus, you know your sin, you know what he's done for you, you'll love his people and you'll love him as shown in your, des in your desire to obey his word. Well, that fourth test the test of knowing you know God based on your love for him as shown in your desire to obey his word. That's really what we're looking at again this morning. We're getting another angle on the issue of what it means to love God. And so I've said it's like a fork in the road of your heart, two roads. You've got to take one or the other. You can't take both. So I want to look at this passage with you, with you in three parts. First, I want to see the two roads, see the two options, understand of, uh, some of what each one is. Second, I want to see the signposts of each road. And what I'm getting at here is how do you know you're on this road or on that road? So we want to look at the roads, we want to see the signposts on each road. And third, we want to see the destination. In other words, where does each road lead? Where is it going to take you? So we want to see the roads, the signposts of each road, and the destination where each road leads. And the first one, as we've, the first road we need to look at, as we've seen, is love for the world. John said, do not love the world. So here we have to ask this all-important question for this passage. What does John mean by the world? What is it that we are to make sure we don't love? Um, this could be hard to parse out. Let me give you one example. Some have thought of the world here as God's creation in general. 
So some have thought to not love the world means to deny the value of the physical body or to deny, to deny enjoyments like food or sex within marriage. Or uh, to, to not love the world, some think, is to cultivate the idea of self-punishment, to show how they don't love the world. I want to I show an example of why this is hard to, to get at or to unpack sometimes. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll start with verses 1 to 2. There Paul writes, Timothy, he says in verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, to teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now just pause for a moment. That sounds pretty, pretty epic, right? Pretty, pretty gnarly. Teachings of demons. Um, False teachers with seared consciences who are lying. I mean, what is this teaching going to be about? It's going to be horrible, right? Well, look now at 1 Timothy 4, verse 3. Look at what they taught. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 4. For everything created by God is what? It's good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Do you see what can happen? For some, denying marriage and food felt like they were denying the evil of the world. And what they thought was the denial of the world was actually very worldly, as Paul says, everything created by God is good and can be made holy by his word and with prayer. Things in the world holy to God's people by the word and prayer. So we begin to see here, don't we, that worldliness is more about our perspective towards something than it is necessarily about the thing itself. It's how we love something or not. It's how we see it or not. Do we see it according to God's word or not? So again, we're asking, what does John mean by the world? Well, just like in English and Greek, uh, one word can have several different meanings, and you know what it means based on context. The word world can mean God's physical creation. Well, what do we know about that from God's word? What did God say about his creation in Genesis? It's good. It's good. Um, what does Jesus say about the body by the fact that he came in one? It's good. What does the scripture teach you about the body by the fact that you're going to get a new one forever? It's good. Creation is good. The, the physical creation God made. He cares for his creation. So the when, when John says don't love the world, he's not necessarily saying don't love or don't appreciate things God has made. Of course not. Uh, the word world can also mean the people of the world. And some of you, as you heard 1 John say, don't love the world, maybe you thought of what the Gospel of John says in John 3.16. Remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world. That he gave his only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So here the word world at least means something like sinful people. And God's attitudes toward them in this word is love and compassion to the extent that he would send his own son who will give up his life to save them. So there's a way in which God loves the world. And we ought to share that love, shouldn't we? Go to them as he has come to us. So what is the world here then that John is describing when he says don't love the world? Well, I want to put it like this. The world here, as John describes it, is a thought system, an attitude of idolatrous desires. It's a system of idolatrous desires. Let me land on some of these words real quick. Desires, what's that? Well, you know what that is, right? It's about what you love and how much you love it. Uh, listen, let's be honest. You desire a happy future, and you want it desperately, and so do I. Just, just realize that's what this text is about. A, a sneak peek into the destinations of these roads. One passes away, that at least means it won't satisfy you. The other one abides forever, that means it will satisfy you. So part of this question is, you want a happy future? Where are you going to look? Where are you going to base that? Where are you going to found that? It's a system of desires here we're talking about. It's a system of idolatrous desires. Idolatrous. What do I mean by idolatrous? Well, idolatry is looking to anything other than God to be God to you and to give what only God can give and to offer what only God can offer. It's to sub out God for something else. And so part of the issue here is how we look at things in the world, what we love the most and what we do with these things. So I'm going to take a risk and I, I think make up a, a word here. And the word I want to make up is worldism. Worldism. And let me, let me get at what I mean with this. Uh, I'll ask you this question. Should you love human beings? Should you love human beings? To an extent, yes. Well, what then is this thing called humanism? What's that? That means humans are everything. They're the ultimate. They're the authority. It's all about humans. That's love for humans gone too far. That is an idolatrous system of thought. God's been replaced with humans. Or we could ask it like this. Do you love the material world? Mountains, trees, oceans. Hey, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. We can love the material world, but what then is materialism? This material world is all there is. It's an idolatrous system of thought. We've replaced God with the material or, sh or should you love pleasures? I could ask you that. Should you love pleasures? Good, good food, beauty, comforts. As we saw from 1 Timothy, those can be holy. But what do we, what do we mean by hedonism? Pleasures are everything. It's an attitude where pleasures don't just add to life. They are life. 
How about politics? Can you be passionate for politics? Hey, they're important for human flourishing. Maybe I'm making another word up here. What, what is politicism? The political is everything. All my hopes for a happy future are in the victory of my political perspective here and now. We replace God with something in this world. That's why I'm calling this worldism, a system of idolatrous desires where we take something and we want it in a warped way because we make it everything. Worldism. Your hopes for a happy future are somehow located ultimately here. Looking for something of the world to be to you what only God can be. To vindicate you, satisfy you, welcome you, comfort you, save you, and give you hope and a future. That's the road of loving the world. Worldism. The other road is the love of the Father. And I wish we had more time here. Who, who, who is that? Who is that? We're talking about the living God of Scripture who created all things and rules all things for His glory. He's the treasure. He is good and the source of all good. He's truth. You can't know what life is about without Him. He's holy. He's set apart. is infinitely valuable. To know Him, to have fellowship with Him, is everything. And He's the only one who can satisfy I want to read to you some of what God says through the, the, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55. Look at this invitation in Isaiah 55. God says in verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Then, we are asked, why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not, what, satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Did you hear this incredible invitation? This is an incredible invitation. Why are you looking for ultimate satisfaction in things of the world? Come to me. You're thirsty? Drink of me. You're hungry? Feed from me. Be satisfied in me. Listen to what I'm saying. Listen to who I am, God says. I'll make a covenant with you. I'll be yours and you'll be mine. As Christians, we know God has done this for us through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus and what he's done, we can know the living God as our, who? Father. And live in his light, his love, his truth. So, so here's the two roads. Your ultimate hope in worldism. Or your ultimate hope, your allegiance, your loyalty, your love for the Father in heaven. Those are your two choices. And we need to see very clearly here that you have to choose one of these roads. Uh, you can't have one foot on one side and one on the other. They're going to split. 
and they'll keep going, and you won't be able to hold the trajectory. You will definitely, necessarily be on one road or the other. In fact, you are right now. And look at how clear John makes this in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? Not in him. You can't put your ultimate allegiance in both. You can say you love the Father, but if your heart is chained to this world, you don't. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Something is going to have your ultimate allegiance. Is it the Father? Now, why is this, why is this dividing line so stark? You know, why, Jesus, why does Jesus say this? Why is John coming so hard against worldism? Well, remember in 1 John 2, 16, John says there, For all that is in the world, and we'll get to these in a moment, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look at the next phrase. It's not from the Father. So the good aspects of the world we've seen, they, they are from the Father. He's, he's made them. But this worldliness, that is not from the Father. And here's why. Worldism denies the value of the Father. Worldism says God is not good enough to satisfy you. His word is not true and final. So you need to look for something else to align yourself with, to be loyal to. And that's why James says this, James 4, verse 4. Strong words here in James. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, the, the worldliness we're talking about here is a system of idolatrous thoughts and desires. It replaces the living God with some sort of desire for the here and now and what he has made. And you can't walk both roads. One Either the Father or the world will have your ultimate love, will have your allegiance, will have your lifestyle. And John is warning Christians, again, make sure, make sure you don't love the world. Make sure. Check your heart. So we've seen two exclusive roads. There's love for the world and there's love for the Father. Now I want to look with you at signs that show you which road you're on. Signs that show you which love or excuse me, which road you're on, which love controls you. We'll go back to 1 John 2, verse 16. There John said, for all that is in the world, and here we get clarity on what John's talking about, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So here we have three signs on the road of loving the world. Number one, the desires of the flesh. How do you know you love the world? The desires of the flesh define what you love. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean, desires of the flesh? Well, I think the best way to understand flesh is the idea of self. That's the way the New Testament seems to use 
the word flesh. It's this inward bent towards the self. It's the idea of self-rule, self-reign, self-definition. In other words, you define, not God, what is good to love and how you will love it. It's about you. You're the authority. It's what you want. It's how you want it. And so the Bible shows us that this kind of flesh Living for self leads to warped desires, crooked desires, desires that don't aim straight, desires that don't treat something the way it ought to be treated, where we want something in the wrong way or we want it to a ridiculous extent, and then we act out of that crooked desire. Let me give you an example of what the flesh can look like. Again, we're talking about desires so turned in on self, where the self defines everything, that the desires get twisted, corrupted. I'm going to turn you to Galatians chapter 5, 19 to 21. Galatians 5, 19 to 21. This, this passage is helpful because it tells us what the works of the flesh look like, what, what some deeds look like when our hearts love the world and our desires are corrupted. Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, Paul says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now first we see John's principle in Paul, don't we? Um, John said, you can't love the world and love the Father. Paul says, if the flesh defines you, you won't inherit the kingdom. They agree. But we see here in, in Galatians 5 a little of how fleshly desire works. Now, there's something like 15 examples. Did you catch that list? It was a, it was a bit overwhelming. And then Paul says, and things like these. So evidently you could go on and on. But I, I just want to point out too many categories here to try to see how this works. Number one, Paul mentions sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Now, what do you think, Christians? Um, who, who invented sex? It's the Father. Is, is sex good or bad? It's good. It's good. It's the body making a covenant promise to your spouse, with your spouse. Sex is the body saying, I'm yours in every way until death. I see you, I know you, I love you, we are one. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. God made it. But sex outside of that marriage covenant, sexual immorality, shows a warped and corrupted desire. In other words, you wanted something so badly you were willing to lie with your body for it. Does this ring true for you? You wanted that physical pleasure. So you let your body make a promise the rest of your life never meant. You wanted that sense of conquest. So you let, you let your body make a promise you had no intention of keeping. You wanted that sense of affection and belonging, so you let your body make a promise you knew wasn't going to last. Maybe you just wanted independence. Our culture says we choose how we do sex, not God. At any case, those were all the acting out of the desires of the flesh. I will choose 
what I want and how I want it, and that will come out in this deed. And it twists and misuses sex. Now, many, many Christians will be quick to see that as worldliness. They'd say, yeah, that's, that's love for the world. Good. Two points from that. Let's not be entertained by it. Let's not watch it quite so much. Maybe not at all. Two. Did you see the rest of the list? Did you see some of these other examples of fleshly desires? Enmity, strife, fits of anger, divisions. Enmity, despising certain groups or people as your enemy. Strife, the idea of constant quarreling. You go to great extents to show that you're right. Fits of anger, passionate anger exploding from your mouth. Division, breaking relationships, church unity, torn apart. Friends, look at yourself, check yourself. Did you see these other examples of deeds of the flesh? Expressions of fleshly desires? Don't these ideas particularly expose our religious and political idolatries? You, you thought you were standing up for what was right, right? You're fighting the world. And then there was enmity in you and bitterness. And there was strife and quarreling. And it exploded out from you in fits of anger. And it brought division in God's people, whom Jesus bought with his blood. And we thought we were fighting the world. And we found that the world was in here. Can you see it? Can you see it? Friends, I'm, I'm thinking that in these polarizing times, we have to be very careful about what we love the most and how that shows itself in our lives. And how it shows itself in our relationships. And how it shows itself in our social media. I want to know, people of God, are people seeing more Jesus and hearing more Jesus? Or are they seeing and hearing more political fervor right now? When people discuss things with you, would it lead them to want to get saved or be in your church with you, even if they disagree? What will matter most in your relationships today, five million years from now? Five million years from now, what will matter most? Politics are important. You should have an opinion. None of the political issues of today will matter five million years from now when we're in the presence of God. Does that reality sweeten or change how you handle these issues, and specifically how we handle them with one another? 
The desires of the flesh, my friends, are a sign that we love the world. The desires of the eyes are also a sign on the road of the world. The desires of the eyes. And this is the way I describe that. It's to see something according to a warped value system and long for it. It's synonymous with coveting. Uh, You see this through the scriptures. Eve in Genesis, when she saw that fruit, the Lord said, don't eat it. It was pleasing to the eye. Wanted it. Or if you read in the book of Joshua, Achan with the Canaanite gold. Oh, that looks good. He wanted it. Or David and Samuel with the wife of his friend. Remember, he saw Bathsheba. He said, she's beautiful. His friend said, that's your friend's wife. He should have said, whoa, my bad. Instead, he says, get her for me. It's the desire of the eyes. So I just want to ask you, what have you seen and longed for that you've begun to serve with your life? That career, that reputation. It could be something good, but has it taken priority over your love for the Father? Is is it a treasure to you, more alluring than the Father? Does that longing lead you to deny the Father's directives? If so, that's love for the world. Check your heart. Again, it's finding all your hopes, your your need for satisfaction here in this place. Now the third sign of love for the world. The first one, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. Now we see um, the pride of life, as it says in the ESV or other translations, uh, pride in possessions. If the first two signs were about things you don't have and that you want. This third sign is about things that you think you do have and you take pride in, something you've accumulated. Um, The first probably obvious meaning of this uh, in context of this book is, is actual material possessions, pride in what you have, how much money you have, your house, your car, whatever. But of course, of course, human beings, we can take pride in far more than that. I just want to ask you to ask the Lord what it is for you. What do you, take, what do you tend to take pride in? The kind of pride where you look down on others. It could be your career. It could be the way you look. It could be your attitude and not caring what others think. It could be your freedom and independence. It could be your intellectual superiority. It could be the religious deeds you have performed to show that you are more godly and righteous than others. Pride and possessions. And here's what's so insidious about this last sign on the road of worldliness. You can even use pride to put down other worldly desires, like desires of the flesh. Um, C.S. Lewis shows us so well. I want to read to you a quote of his regarding pride. Listen to C.S. See, it says, pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices. Teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride, or as they call it, his self-respect, to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think they are beneath his dignity. That is, by pride. The devil laughs. 
He is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he's setting, you, setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. Just as he would be quite content to see your blisters cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. And you see here, don't you, how love for the world doesn't fit with love for the Father? Because there is no one who loves the Father and remains prideful. How dare we set ourselves up in the face of God in such a way? So those are the signposts, friends, on love for the world. Desires of the flesh that turn into the acts of the flesh, uh, the lust of the eyes that we serve instead of the Father, and pride that sets itself up in opposition to the Father. Hopefully we're on the other road. Let's look at that road now. What is the signpost we are on the road of love for the Father? Look again at 1 John 2, 17. There the apostle says, Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Very simple. What does it say? Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what's the major sign that you are on the road of love for the Father? You do His will. You do His will. I think it's interesting that it doesn't say you do his commands. It could have said that. It's almost synonymous. But it does say do his will. And will gets you back into the idea of desires and loves. And we see that God has desires and loves. God loves what he ought. And so it reminds us that for those who know God's love and love him in return, we will learn to love what he loves. This is the opposite of the flesh. Flesh looks at itself and says, I love what I want to love. The will of God looks at our glorious Father and says, my wills are screwed up. My loves are screwed up. I want to love what he loves. And that's going to turn into a transformed life. We want to do what he loves. So what are we going to do with ourselves right here? Um, the text has been very clear, right? And hopefully I've been clear in saying, don't love the world. And, uh, and I hope at least a couple of us are a little concerned because we found ways in which we do love the world. I know that's true of me. So, so what are we supposed to do now? Okay, uh, don't love the world, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride and possessions. Instead, do the will of the Father. Let's pray. I fear I would leave you hanging. I leave myself hanging. There's more that we can say and should say about the will of the Father and what that means. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 40. We're reminded here that the gospel of John has many echoes that show itself in the epistle of John. In John chapter 6, verse 40, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
Friends, I think this sums up nearly everything that John means in his epistle. What's the major will of your father? It's not expected here in this text that you, by your own strength, would somehow end loving the world and atone for all the ways you have loved the world so that you would have loved the Father enough on your own to be right with God. That's not possible. We're too broken. We're too sinful. No, Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who, what's the first thing? Looks on the Son and believes in Him. This has so much in it. One thing it has in it is confession. I haven't loved you, Father, like I should. I'm I'm worthy of your just displeasure. But look there. Look at Jesus. He always loved his Father. Never once did he fall into an idolatrous love for this world. He lived a perfect life of loving obedience to his Father. And if we look on the Son and believe in him, we have eternal life. One thing that means is we're forgiven of all our worldliness in Christ. If you repent of your sin and trust Christ and look to him in faith, he forgives. He forgives the worldliness. But not only does he forgive you for your worldliness, he transforms you. Because eternal life is infinitely more than forgiveness. It's transformation. It's God's life in us and us with him. And it's the change of heart. It's the change of desire. So that you find your father and his son, the Lord Jesus, far more valuable than anything in this world. And then you want then how you love this world and how you live in this world to honor him and glorify him and show ultimately your love for him. And it puts everything in its proper place. The will of the Father is to look to the Son and believe and have eternal life to the point where not only are you forgiven for your worldliness, but you're transformed. And you're growing out of it. It's through Christ that we take the exit from the road of the world and end up on the road of love for the Father. And this transforms us to the point where, remember back to those tests? How do you know you know God? What do you believe about his truth, his son, the Lord Jesus and what he's done? Do you confess your sin and look to him to save you? And do you love your brothers and sisters and do you want to grow in obeying God's commands? This is the will of the Father. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 to 3. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are what? They're not burdensome. I want to follow him. He's the treasure. He's everything to me. He's the best. Do you realize how this transforms you? I was reminded today, you know, in that same text in Galatians where it tells us about the works of the flesh. Paul later says, um, those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We put those things to death because we have this new love. Remember one example of... uh, Acting out of our flesh was sexual immorality. 
You know, when your heart's changed to love the Father and want to keep his commandments, all of a sudden more valuable to you is integrity. That you love God and love your neighbor with how you use your body, with what you do with your eyes, with what you do with your entertainment. And there becomes this superior pleasure of purity and of God and his ways. It transforms you. And what about the other aspects of the flesh we looked at? Strife, enmity, fits of anger. What would come out of you instead? Again, Galatians 5, read it. The fruit of the Spirit. Hey, let me, let me read this slowly. I want to ask you, does this sound like you? Love? Joy? Peace? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the life of transformation that is left behind the flesh. That's the life that looks like love for the Father and not of the world. Well, we've seen the roads. There's the love for the world. There's the love for the Father. We've seen their signs. The love for the world, it's a lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride in possessions. Love for the Father, you love and do his will through faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus. Now, finally, the destinations. The destinations. 1 John 2, 17 The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you see, friends, why which road you're on is so important? If you love this world more than the Father, you need to know the road of this world goes off a cliff and lands in hell. The values of this world are like milk that is past the expiration date. They will sour, and they will not satisfy you. Love for this world makes this claim. Do you hear it? It's the great commercial. I'll make you happy. And God is warning you through this text, letting you know that's a lie. There is no future in the idolatrous desires of the world. They won't give you what they offer. And don't you know that already in your heart of hearts? They don't come through on what they offer. But John says this world is passing away along with its desires. Do you realize here it's already started passing away? It's already hit the expiration date. It's already on the way out. And John talks this way because Jesus has already come. And his light is already shining as we've seen previously. And his power is already saving. And there are people already being moved to the road that lasts forever, the road of love for the Father. Jesus' cross has begun the great change, the great renewal. As he's paid for our sins, risen from the dead, and moved his people into fellowship with the Father. So we see where the the road of love for the Father takes us. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. I want to encourage you, maybe take some time and study that word abide in the Gospel of John. 
Study that word abide in the letter of 1 John, and you're going to see beautiful things. It's the idea that we, we stay real close. We, we snuggle up to. We remain right here with the person of Jesus and his Father. We have fellowship with them. They're ours. We are theirs. We abide in his word. This truth that is transcultural, so far above the circumstances of today, lasts forever. We abide, the text says, in his love. Abide in his love. We abide in his eternal life. The good life. God's quality of life. Shared with us, his children. After all, it's the road of love for our Father. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 25 to 26. And I hope this is the echo of all our hearts this morning. Psalm 73, 25. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So friends, as we finish Check the road, check the road of your heart and do it by looking at what you love the most and the evidence of what you love the most and how it shows itself in your life. Ask God to show you what are my major passions, my driving loves, the things I look to. If you're not a Christian this morning, maybe you realize you've been on the road of the world all your life. And, and hopefully you're thinking you want to get off and you want to know the love of the Father. Trust Christ. Trust him. Trust Christ. Look to Christ. This is the will of the Father. Look to Jesus, his perfect life, his death on the cross for your sins, his victorious resurrection, his reign now. Look to him. Look to him in his word and trust yourself to him. He'll get you off that ugly road. If you are a Christian, hey, let's be humble enough to listen to the warning. I've got some worldliness in me. I've got some crooked desires. And so do you. Let's check our hearts. Let's look for where we're tempted to love the world in a way that's over the top, to the exclusion of the Father. Unpack that lie in your heart, that belief that this thing right here, right now, is the ultimate. And see how the love and care of your Father in heaven is far better and let's move forward in loving what he loves. Let's move forward in pursuing ultimately the things that will matter for eternity and obey his commands in those aspects of our lives. That's where happiness will be found and found forever. It's in our glorious Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would do this work in us. I pray for everybody who is heard this message that you'd show us at least one thing, one way to move for you, to pursue you. Lord, we repent of the ways we've been adulterous and we love things in this world far too much to the exclusion of love and loyalty to you. We pray that the sweetness of Jesus and the, perf the, the perfect righteousness he gives and the, the way he's paid for our sins and um, the glory that he is would, would win us and move us, comfort us and motivate us to uh, walk the road of love for the Father. And that, that would show itself in all that we love and do. We pray this for the glory of Jesus and in his name.
Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com.